Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my favorite turkey, my co-host <laughs> Teos Abadia. Hey Teos, happy Thanksgiving-ishness. Yeah, yeah. Is, is it? Wow. It, yeah. So uh, yeah, happy Thanksgiving-ish to everybody out there who who celebrates by murdering turkeys or whatever it is we do. I, I think it, we're supposed to get together with our families in a store and buy a lot. Is that correct? And watch football. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm I think bad it's at that part. Eat a lot, I'm... watch football, yeah. and then go shopping. It's <laughs> how almost everyone that I know celebrates it. Yeah. Uh, and we're, we're probably just going to not even eat a meal this time. We'll probably just do the shopping and the football. My daughter's coming home, so we're we're excited for that. Yeah. That. And in fact, she tried to get away with That's coming great. home earlier. And then one of her teachers in classic college style said, don't show up and I fail everybody, you know, who doesn't show up. And so tickets were changed <laughs> by a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. I when I taught, it was a bad time of year for grandparents. Mm. I shared a office with two other teachers. So we probably taught about eight classes between us. And I think the one year we were told like 17 different grandparents died. So the kids had to leave early uh, wow. for, yeah. So that's a, that's a, that, so I always tell my students now before, you know, tell them the grandparents story. So don't, don't try to pull that one on me. If you're, you know, grandparents yeah. or someone in your family does pass away, sadly, then I apologize. But, but it can't be 17. Yeah, we them. got a lot of that. Wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think these days schools are like, show me the, you know, whatever, like official paperwork or something. I bet you can't get away with that. That's yeah. Mm. I, I also think Probably it's not cool not. to go there. But <laughs> anyway. <sighs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but with that bit of happiness out of the way, we are ready to hear from our listeners. We we will start with Majidad via YouTube. Speaking of Thanksgiving and then the real holiday <laughs> after that, Black Friday. Uh, last minute request for next week's show. Buyer's guide for potential Black Friday deals. I suspect there will be a lot and I can't buy it all, but I'd be interested in your thoughts. So I'm going to leave the shopping portion of this to you, Teo, since I... I'm a cheap bastard who does not oh. like to spend money in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I am too. Uh, and the truth, I, I very much dislike the, like, you must buy now kind of thing. And I think it's all terrible. It, but anyway, um, but uh, I am on Mastodon. If you're there, you can check out at Tabletop Gaming Deals. Uh, he is constantly putting out all kinds of sales of board games, RPGs, and everything. A lot of them are Amazon. Uh, there's also a website you can go to and see kind of everything broken down by category, but it's kind of shocking how much stuff is on there. There is a Kobold Press bundle at HumbleBundle.com. Noble Knight has some big discount going on if you want classic old stuff. Uh, for great board games or puzzle how-tos, Lone Shark Games, shop.loanshartgames.com has 50% off or more site-wide. Free shipping when you spend $50 or more. That's wild. Um, WizKids will have a 25% off thing, but they throw in a handling tax and shipping. So, you know, do the math versus other sites. Sometimes other sites are better. DMs Guild and DriveThru, you yeah. mentioned Sean here in the our show notes, do a Black Friday sale. 
Yep, generally they do. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, they're actually currently doing a teach your kids to game sale, uh, on the, at least on the DMs Guild. Um, so if you want to check that out before it goes away, and I assume Black Friday sales will follow. Um, also, one thing that just came to mind is if you have a favorite publisher or a publisher whose work you're interested in, just go right to their web store. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, they will have sales. Uh, and even if they don't, by supporting those publishers directly and not via Amazon, not via drive through uh, you are giving all the money to the publisher uh, as opposed to you know giving money to these third party places, which are fine, but uh, you know yeah. that yeah. money goes directly to the publisher if you order from their their stores. Yeah, if you go to Ghostfire Gaming, if you go to SlyFlourish.com and pick up, you know, Forge of Foes. I mean, those are the kind. Of, that's the gift. That's the true gift because yes, you may have paid actual retail price for something or whatever the sales that that group can afford to do, but you actually were part of that awesome gaming industry and helping out. To me, that's the spirit. For sure. So thank you for the question, Majidad, and I hope uh, that helps. Next, we have Kurt Ugo4576 via YouTube, who says, Teos and Sean, have either of you ever played a flump? <laughs> yes. Um, uh, I have been fortunate enough to play one at least twice. Uh, I played one. The, one of the most fun was during an Extra Life D&D event that I got to attend back before uh, I, I was <laughs> deemed not worthy of such events. Um, I got to play a character that became, I was transformed into a flump. And, and that was really a lot of fun. How about you, Sean? I have only played a flump as a dungeon master, never mm-hmm. as a player character. Well, uh, so I can't say that I have. I'm working on helping you and everybody else who has not had the chance to play a flump because I do have an adventure where you get to play flumps and I'm slowly working my way through the uh, development of that adventure. And we are looking forward to that. And that will be my first time playing a flump as a player character. But uh, Kurt Ugle 4576 goes on to ask more seriously, having a monstrous player race at the party might maybe jarring as it may elicit a strong reaction from the setting NPCs and may really limit the type of play. It may work well for dungeons, but not for settlements. Mm -hmm. Further, there may be a lack of information available on the race's cultures. For example, what does a tabaxi settlement look like, aside from the Isle of Dread, uh, Rakasta? Aside from the usual advice, talk to all your players about such inclusion first, how have you accommodated or not monstrous PCs? Also, is there an unusual race you'd like to play or have played? And so I, I want to uh, I want to start. We'll, we'll answer this in full, but I want to start by the aside from the usual advice part, because we always say this right in in every answer we give a, with questions like this. We're always like, talk to your players. <laughs> Thanks. And so saying, aside from that usual advice, so many times people do not listen to that advice, whether they're unwilling to or unable to communicate effectively, you know, they they don't do it. And that's why we so many times see problems in our games or in our world as a whole, 
because people fail to communicate or have unmet expectations Mm -hmm. or expectations that are unattainable or unexpressed, or they refuse to acknowledge the validity of others' expectations and desires. So, yes, I have dealt with this. I am dealing with this right now in my home campaign, which I will talk about after I let Teos answer. But don't don't always don't say aside from the usual advice, (laughs) because the usual advice is the most important advice we can give. Yeah, it really is the cornerstone, right? And I think we, we've, those of us who played fourth edition, uh, and it's getting this way in fifth edition too, but you would go to an organized play table and it would be like a knoll, a Shatterkai, a uh, vampire, a warforged, you know, are the party. And they're in this everyday small town and it's like could you help us from the goblins it's like we would never turn to us for help we look like the advanced squad for those evil things that are hurting you and uh and and so it's just ludicrous and and you had to because there was no beginning concept of what it meant and it was just show up at the table with whatever it meant that we just suspended disbelief right no one addressed it game after game nobody addressed the fact mm-hmm. that all these absolutely fantastic ludicrous creatures were playing the game and that's a bit of a shame right and so for mm-hmm. dark sun my story is that for, for dark sun organized play we only used the the typical ancestries that show up in dark sun so only those core things and we did it so that when you sat down at a table you felt that dark sun feel of the halfling that's a cannibal and the Elf that isn't very elf compared to normal D&D elves and the, you know, half giant Goliath and so on. And so you really felt that core experience. And then what we did was every time you died in an adventure, uh, whoever died at the table received a death certificate. Often those death certificates unlocked something else. So in an adventure featuring a bunch of Arakakra, uh, which maybe you wrote, Sean, or was, it was part of right around that time. Yeah. Um, one of the Arakakra joins your group and becomes your new PC and it takes an interest in the story of your character. So now they know something about you. So it's kind of almost like you reincarnate a little bit, uh, or at least you come as a new character that has connections to your old one, but as this unlocked race, right? And so now that creates a reason why they're there. It does allow for that sort of stretch your legs, play something different, but it has grounding in the story of the adventure. When my home group finished Rime of the Frost Maiden, we said, what do we do next? And it was sort of my turn to DM. So I said, okay, here are three choices. We can play this adventure, this adventure, this adventure. And what they chose of three very wildly divergent uh, possibilities was the Citadel of the Unseen Sun from uh, Grim Hollow. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, great. And I explained to them, I had already explained to them what the world was like. Dark medieval Europe. Grimm's fairy tales, mm-hmm. this sort of thing, you know, very grounded in in that medieval feel. So, you know, we're we're gonna have to lean into that. And what do two players bring to the table? A loxodon and a heron god. <laughs> so we have an elephant person and a and a rabbit person. And and I was just my my and I you know, after the throbbing stopped. <laughs> I was like, I, I could just say no to this. These species have no place in Atheris. Uh, and so my first thought was no. 
And I thought, well, I could take the time to create a place for this species in in the setting. And then I went, no, I don't have the time. I don't have the mental energy. I like this world as it is. It does not need Loxodon or Heron God. But I want these people to, I want these two folks to play the characters they want to play. Yeah. And so we had already come up with the idea that they would be part of a traveling circus. So it was very easy to say, these two characters are unique in the world. They are from a different place, or maybe they are just magically, they were born this way. Mm-hmm. Where would might they end up in a spectacular entertainment venue like a traveling circus? Uh-huh, right. And so it's sort of, are they outsiders? Absolutely. But they fit into the story that they've built together of this. Will it come to, um, I don't want to say bite them in the butt, but <laughs> yeah, right. does it affect role-playing? Absolutely. Sure. Right? They, they come up on a group of children and they, they're trying to find out where this monster might be layering. And they said, you know, what's the scariest thing you've seen around here? And the kids all point to, right. The, the, the elephant dude. Yeah. And, and, Right. So it's, there's this constant reminder that they're different and it will come to pass that it will affect the story, but at least we've grounded it in this thing. The other yeah. way to deal with it is, as Teo said, just ignore it. Uh, just just ignore it. The The weird thing about this game, like we've always said, is it's a story and it's a, it's mechanics. It's a game and it's and species races, whatever you want to call it, have come to be less about the story for a lot of people and more about the mechanics that it delivers to your 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 uh, entry into the game, your piece that you move around the board. So just ignore the mechanics are the mechanics. Yes, you are a ogre, uh, whatever, <laughs> by right. by your mechanics, but you're just a really big human. Who's pretty brutal. Well, and I think and, Sean, yeah, right? So you could just do that. You well, can what, reskin it that way. Th- that's where I think, you know, well, getting to where you know what the character wants, right? So, like, is the character right. saying, uh, or the, sorry, not the character, but the, but the player, is the player saying, um, I want to play something that's weird in the setting? Or are they looking for the, you know, sweet mechanics of, whatever this is right because even of warforged is quite jarring in a lot of campaigns uh outside of ebron like that's Mm -hmm. weird why is there a robot here right and so what is it that you want out of that do you not want to be questioned well then you could just look like you're in a suit of armor all the time right um and people don't realize there's no person behind the helmet um but but if you want to be intruding upon the setting then we can play off of that right And, and and Kind of like you were talking about the Luxodon example, right? And really dig in and have everybody react to it. But figuring that out is probably worthwhile to know whether your character, your your player wants their character to stand out or not. So excellent question there. And finally, we have via Twitter Grandpa's advice saying, what are your thoughts or advice on uh, running a campaign with multiple DMs? We're thinking of trading off between adventures, running two to three sessions per adventure, then switching DMs to reduce the burden, but keep a constant or consistent game world. How would you set this up? 
My friends, let me introduce you to organized play. <laughs> organized play exists specifically to solve this problem. Now, all the deficiencies of organized play are the challenges that this sort of campaign style has to overcome. How do you make a campaign's plot and storyline feel coherent when you're switching between adventures and between game masters? Uh, one way to handle this is to take the idea of fronts that were named in the Apocalypse World game, but have been around forever in different forms. So what is a front? A front is an overarching threat, usually involving some sort of boss villain or boss organization, and then the network that comes down from that villain and the threats that the network brings to the setting. And a good campaign will weave these fronts. So at this point, you're fighting against this vampire lord who is trying to overtake the, the setting. Uh, but after you deal with that, you realize there's also a threat over here from the Noel god and the Noel, uh, the Noel army that's approaching. And so you can move back and forth in your adventures between these different fronts. When you're dealing with one front, the machinations of the other front are continuing and the setting is evolving because you're not focusing on that now, so they are succeeding in small ways. This is a way that you can have each game master, each DM, take a front as their front. And then as you change from fighting one front to another, switch around the game, the players that are also game masters can toss in small things to the DM of that particular front to show what's going on behind the scenes mm -hmm. or to put in some small Easter eggs or some small uh, images or icons or something that will keep re reminder of these other fronts yeah that's Thoughts? a cool idea um it, it makes what you're saying makes me think of sort of a west marches style campaign right where you could say you know if we take this map and we're going to go and explore different parts of it um that's where you could say well okay dm1 takes the northeast and dm2 takes the mm -hmm. the southwest and so on and you just split up the map into different areas and as the players go to different zones to explore and find what's there, well, that's when mm -hmm. that DM would kick in. And if roughly there's the same amount of play in, in each of the quadrants, then, you know, four DMs could totally split this or six or however many. And that, that could be a fun way to do that, too. It's similar to that kind of fronts idea, but but maybe geographical and, and, and could result in sort of some nice organic play where you go from one side to the other. And, oh, you now you switch DMs because you know what's going on. Um, but but I, I think that the general challenge of having many DMs is that often you find yourself as DM wanting to create these plots that are going to lead to places. And then passing that torch is hard. And so that's where it's nice to split things up so that your creativity can be in this kind of silo and place and focus and doesn't have to be something you have to pass on to someone who may not quite want to work with it the way you did. So if they're independent stories, it generally works better. They can have touch points because that's fun. But you generally don't want to just say like, and now here, the whole burden is yours. Go with what I created because they'll, they'll want to do it differently. And that often doesn't feel satisfying to everybody as you if you especially if you pass. It's like a game of telephone, right? If you pass the campaign on six times at the end, it's not what the yeah. first person envisioned. Right, right. And it's even harder if you come back to 
you know, you come back to, if you have three G three GMs, yeah. you go from one, two to three. Then if you go back to one, two and three again, <laughs> um, yeah. it's, it's harder to pick up. Like this is if you just do a third of the campaign, DM one, a third DM two, a third DM three, it's a little easier for <laughs> the DM one and two to let go uh, yeah. because they can watch the story and marvel at where it's gone, as opposed to having to then come back and start it again. Right. Um, that's why the fronts idea or, the geographical uh, division of labor there uh, mm-hmm. can can work too. Awesome. Thank you so much for these questions. If you have a question, at the end of the show, we will tell you how and where to ask. But now let's get into our news and commentary, starting with new features from Maps on D&D Beyond. Tell us all about this. Mr. Teos. Absolutely. Uh, the VTT that's not called a VTT because there's a different VTT coming uh, has got a round of features. You have a token toolbar that lets you have keyboard free access to doing things like deleting tokens, uh, hiding and reveal things. Um, so you can suddenly reveal uh, monster tokens and things like that. Uh, border color options for the monsters. So you can like, you know, have the friendly goblins in blue and the ones that are uh, adversaries in red. Uh, A ruler tool, so both players and DMs can measure distances on the map and see that distance automatically scaled based on the particular map. And zoom controls to plus and minus in and out to see things more closely or further out. Uh, There's a YouTube video walking through all these and the website that is the how to start playing with maps has been updated for these features as well. Links in our show notes. Have you used this at all for an actual game other not, than just no. playing around with it? I have not for an actual game, um, just playing around. I, I would, um, uh, but I just haven't had the opportunity. Yeah, okay. I, I'm tempted to run a quick game just to try it out with people, uh, You know, trying to use as many of the D&D Beyond features as possible yeah. to see how smoothly the integration is and how the dice rolling works and all that, but like you, I haven't had the uh, yeah the time yet. And I think all these there. things create a, a you, you sort of have to try out like how deep do you want to go, right? So even when I was running like say Discord and the Avray bot and the Beyond 20 integration and all this, it's sort of like it, there are so many things you can do. And at some point it gets in the way of the game unless you have a lot of time and you're doing this all the mm-hmm. time. And so it's, it's, it's often a question of how much you want to enable, right? Do you want to just tell everybody what we're doing and everybody can roll wherever they want. Or do you want to link a discord to maps? Do you want, you know, all these questions to go through? In other news, there is now a free D and D adventure that's been added to the teacher resources page at wizards of the coast. So a few months back, we talked about wizards offering resources, some free and others in the form of kits that you could buy for teachers and D&D game club advisors, especially at the middle school and high school level. They even had a contest that gave away thousands of dollars worth of material, as well as some cash to teachers, to advisors of clubs, to libraries. And now to this page has been added a learn to play adventure for kids or adults who want to learn more about D&D, but don't have the time or the ability to learn all of the rules. I hope this adventure any, is called hope, Peril in Pinebrook. I hope someone's really smart wrote that adventure, Sean. 
Well, unfortunately, no, uh, I did. <laughs> so Peril in Pinebrook contains uh, four simplified pre-generated characters, plus an adventure to use them in. Its runtime is between one and two hours, and it introduces the basics of D&D gameplay. So it doesn't use the full rules. There are no ability scores mm. uh, in the, on these pre-gens. It's just the attacks and the skills that the characters might use. There's no saving throws. Nothing in, in there calls for saving throws. So it's just, here are the things you can do. You roll the d20 die. You add a number to it and you compare it to a number mm-hmm. and say, you know, and then so it explains what armor class is and what hit points are, but skill checks, ability checks. Uh, we call them skill checks since we don't put abilities on there, uh-huh. uh, but skill checks. And then all of the other die rolls other than the D20s are just D6s. So all the weapons do D6 mm-hmm. of damage. Uh, there are some things where a set static amount of damage or healing is done by an ability rather than having a die roll. Uh, but it, we tried to um, really make this something where even a, a even a student could pick it up without any knowledge of D&D and run it That's or awesome. an adult uh, mm-hmm. could, could do so. And, you know, it's, it's still not as simple as I would have liked it. Hmm. But it does need to be D and D. It does need to have D twenty rolls and and addition and you know that sort of thing. But hopefully, the mechanics get out of the way of of the players going through a fun story. Yeah, and that's that was the desire behind it. And so you can check it out. It's uh, on the resources slash educators page at dnd.wizards.com. Well, it sounds like a fascinating project. I mean that in, in the most positive sense of the word fascinating in that like you, you mm-hmm. had to wrestle with how to take the very complex Dungeons & Dragons game, which when you think of it really is shockingly complex, no matter how simple we try to make it. And then you had to actually make that into a thing that really was actually simple. And that, that must have been hard. It It was a lot more work than I thought it would be because... <laughs> If you're writing adventure, you just write the adventure and you know that the people who are reading it know the rules. Yeah. So you can get away with a lot of not explaining, knowing that the DM will generally have the knowledge to pick it up and and run with it if you are lacking in any area. With this, it was very much, let's explain this step by step by step. What's a die roll? What's a check? How do you resolve (laughs) them? You know, what happens if things go off the rails? What, you know, <laughs> those sorts of things needed to be addressed. And just sort of the, the game flow in, yeah. in and of itself. What's what's the flow of the game? How how do you run a game of D&D if you've never seen or heard of or watched or anything like that? Uh, That's really cool. So I, in as few words as possible, I tried to get that across <laughs> in a sort of step-by-step manner. So that, that's a great challenge. We'll see how it goes. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Well, I'm excited to look at it. I haven't had a chance to look at it. I know it's been there. I've been excited to look at it. I know Mike Shea took a look at it and was saying very positive things about it. So uh, it, it's really a neat idea. Yeah. Do, do you think this could be, would you use this? Would you advocate for its use as a convention demo for like learn to play or, or, or not? I think you definitely could. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 thing about like learn to play at a convention is you know that the DM knows what they're doing, mm-hmm. and it's easier to explain. Uh, what what I realized when I was doing this was how much character creation and character progression adds complexity to a game. Yeah, and I sort of you I always knew it in the back of my head, but yes, I'm pulling pieces out and trying to. Yeah. Oh, I pulled too many pieces out. What do I have to put back in? <laughs> yeah, I realized how having to create a character, having to yeah. level a character, all the different options, how how much complexity that can really, really add. Uh, so I think you could definitely run this, you know, in an hour at a show mm-hmm. uh, or at a you know at a public event or even at a private event, um, with the understanding that it's not going to have the depth and complexity that a lot of people love about D&D. Uh, yeah. So just if you go yeah. in understanding that, you it delivers the feel of what a storytelling game, what that mm-hmm. means, and what switching between the mechanics of a role mm-hmm. and the exposition of a story take uh, wow. to, to manage a role-playing game. Awesome. Cool. Yep. So if anyone checks it out, let me know what you think. Uh, I I promise I will only cry a little bit uh, if you have uh, bad things to say. Speaking of bad things, or not so bad things, we have 100 Harmless Dungeon Denizens coming to us via M.T. Black's newsletter. Uh, tell us about this, Teo. Yeah, Empty Black has this great newsletter that he provides. I think it's like 10 links a week, and this was one of them. So this blog post is on the OSR Vault, and that website has this blog post with 100, a table of 100 creatures you might encounter, but every single one of them is harmless or even beneficial. So two examples. Scissor bugs, which are beetle-like, the size of dinner plates, huge serrated mandibles, but they're harmless. They just have a voracious appetite for fungus of all kinds. They're resistant to poison, and they project a sphere of silence in a five-foot diameter for each beetle in the swarm. And I love this as the idea when I was reading this. I was like, oh, this could be a really cool prelude to an encounter with shriekers. So you've got to go back and get the scissor bugs, which can now silence the shriekers and even eat them, right? So that kind of thing. Uh, Paperkin, which are scraps and pages of magical books left dormant for so long that parts of them gain sentience and they act like tiny little warriors. It's almost like imagining these fold up little, right? Like the scraps of the pages become the characters and, and they thirst for an origami army. Yeah. An origami army. Right. And, and I just, you know, there are a lot in there and some of them you kind of go, man, that's not for me. But you know, if you looked at this as you're populating a dungeon, you'd come up with a lot of fun ideas for things to add to dungeon, cavern, wilderness trek, whatever, right? Like, it's a fun concept. And it's just a nice reminder of, like, yeah, put in those things that aren't dangerous at all, but are interesting interactions and engaging, right? For sure. We then have Running Towns in Fantasy Role-Playing Games, a blog article from our friend Mike Shea, Sly Flourish, with great guidance. Uh, It ties to our review of the Dungeon Master's Guide, for how it addresses urban adventures. So what does Mike say about 
or what ideas does Mike bring us about how to make a town interesting? He gives you three general uh, guides. One is identify a fantastic feature. And this is very, you know, lazy DM type thinking. Um, but, but, and I quote him here when I say, what makes this town unique or interesting, right? I don't think it necessarily has to be a fantastic feature, but what is it that grabs your attention when they enter the town? Like I, I'm working on a thing where the whole idea is that they pick and sell apples, right? That's not particularly fascinating, but it's a it's a nice identity and a lens through which the characters will see the town. So I don't know that it has to be, you know, wildly fascinating, but just something that really separates the town from others. Um, set up a situation. When the characters enter the town, it works best if they get involved in something right away. And that's 100% true. We've talked about things like Temple of Elemental Evil and the Village of Hamlet. You arrive at the village and it's like, okay, what do I do? Do I just start talking people? And in the olden days, we just started taking everybody's money. But um, ideally, there's something that, that grabs you, right? The townsfolk need something or there's the middle of a festival or something's happening so that you get sucked into it and feel like you have a role, something you're, you're due. Or you came here with a purpose, right, to meet this particular person, then that creates that kind of uh, situation. And the last one is options customized to the characters. And Mike's point is, don't go all about creating this for yourself. Do it so it works off of what the characters want. So um, you don't just want a giant town or city where, you know, hey, look through the menu of everything this town offers. Give them with things that the characters would want, right? So if there's a person who's looking for armor and there isn't a blacksmith there working on armor, well, that's going to naturally draw them right in and start things going and make the town effective. So overall, just great article. The kind of advice that I wish we had seen in the DMG around urban adventures and populating towns and things like that. There you go. Well, if it was in the DMG, then we wouldn't get Mike's great thoughts on it. So <laughs> it's true. I'll take it. Now with our creator and crowdfunding news, we have Fern Bloom's Guide to Freebone Vale from creator Tim Van Dalen. Uh, a new mini setting for 5e D&D. It's an 84-page book containing adventure seeds, encounters, locations, a one-shot adventure, background subclasses, and more. And you have met Tim in person. Yeah, on a business trip to the Netherlands, I got to hang out with Tim uh, and a bunch of his friends. It was great. Uh, they took me out to a very cool place, and we had a really nice time. He's a fantastic person, a uh, great creator. He's I know he's worked really hard on this project to make it a great experience. So the idea of, of this is just, you know, that you can take this town and surrounding encounters and just drop it into your game whenever you need this kind of a place. Um, well worth your, your looking at this project you have until December 14th. Uh, go to Kickstarter, search for Fern Bloom, uh, or you can use the link in our show notes. But yeah, fantastic. And Tim absolutely deserves success for this project. Great creator. Yep. And another great creator out there is the Brazilian creator CZRPG, who has a new project combining maps and adventures called Amazing Encounters and Locations. There are 12 locations ready to drop into your world, each with detailed encounters, gorgeous maps, totaling 240 pages with 38 detailed encounters. And you've had experience with CZRPG before. Yeah, I backed his previous project. It was great. He's really good at setting up maps that are very useful. 
a lot of times I see maps that are very pretty, but it's like, where do the minis go? How do they interact? And, and these are all very cleverly created and they tie into the encounters really well. So another excellent project we would recommend. And and he's, he's also a very smart creator who thinks a lot about the industry and how to be uh, a good part of it. So, yeah. Awesome. But now here on this episode of Mastering Dungeons, we are going to talk about the adventure from Planescape Adventures in the Multiverse. So this is the adventures part of Adventures in the Multiverse. We've already covered book one, Sigil in the Outlands, and we've covered book two, the monster book. Was it Mort's Planar? Parade? Something. Parade, thank you. I knew it was a P word, but I couldn't get there. So now we are going to look at book three, the adventure Turn of Fortune's Wheel, which Teos is so elegantly displaying on the screen if you're watching. And Sean... And even if you're not watching, he is still doing it. I'm still doing it. Sean, to, to celebrate this for those who can see, I was uh, cleaning up, moving into a new game room area, and I found some really fun things like this gift box. Ooh. And I'm like, oh, is there anything in here? And I unwrapped this thing, not knowing what it was. And of all the stupid collectibles I have, dare I use that word, I have a stamp kit for Planescape. Oh my goodness. Dating back to the 80s. This is when he's like, you, you, you know, you, you stamp it down yeah. and it leaves that. And I, I don't, right. I barely remember finding this. <laughs> you have to wonder how many of these were ever made. Some TSR artifact of this Planescape stamp set. Right. So I, I saw that. I said, Oh, could, I have to did share. Did you buy it? Can you I, I'm even pretty imagine sure I, where it came I, from? I, I'm pretty sure I found it on eBay. You know, sometimes I keep things like like searches on eBay, and something will be. I'm sure I paid fifteen dollars yeah. right for it. something really cheap for something that's probably a lot worth a lot more today. But um, I, I just I laughed so hard that I have like this sundering box that I think I also picked up on, on eBay, like a special thing that was sent out to influencers, <laughs> and then I have this planescape stamp thing and i'm like all right i guess i gotta display that on my shelf somewhere <laughs> that is that is amazing and horrifying i know i'm a terrible uh, nerd and i will get to my amazing and horrifying revelation later but let's first let's talk about uh turn of fortune's wheel so like as we said this is the adventure there are spoilers in this episode you have been warned uh if you don't want to know what happens at this adventure, now's the time to to check out. We apologize, but that's what we're here for. We're here to talk about these things so people are able to know what's in them and yeah. to use them to their utmost. So and, uh, this is what we're going to look at. And this adventure isn't one of those where like, oh, the spoilers at the end. Like they, the spoilers right at the beginning. There are various levels of spoilers, mm -hmm. and the book tells you all of them up front, and so or most of them at least. And so you're going to get the spoilers will be right at the beginning. So you don't want it. You don't want any of it. If you don't want to be spoiled. Yep. There you go. And so what we're going to look at in this adventure is, is it a good adventure? Is it a good Planescape adventure? Mm. And what does that mean? Does it show us how to create our own adventures and our own campaigns using all of these wonderful tools that the Planescape setting has given us. How do we use them to the fullest? We'll see if the adventure does that, 
or if it's just a good adventure and what we might do as DMs uh, and as designers with this adventure. How long is this adventure? It is 96 pages. How does that compare, Teos, to some of the other things that you've seen and looked at? Yeah, I mean, I took a look at Storm King's Thunder, which is in a much smaller font, and that is 230 pages of true adventure content, right? Not looking at backgrounds or anything like that. And even a more recent adventure, like the Dragonlance book, right, which has like a beginning that isn't really the adventure. It's sort of set up stuff and character backgrounds and things like that. But Dragonlance is still basically 150 pages of specifically the adventure, right? So this is a lot smaller, big font, 96 pages, lots of art. Um, and so it'll go much quicker as an experience. And maybe that's an asset, but also worth understanding that this is relatively short compared to anything you've you've mm -hmm. seen, maybe an older fifth edition offerings. Yeah, I don't consider that, like you said, I don't consider that necessarily a bad thing depending on what is done with the content that we do have. Yeah. Some adventures do run on too long or should have been stopped, say, when you deal with the Frost Maiden and uh, yeah. <laughs> solve the problems of Icewood Dale. Uh, but True. we will now get into the introduction, which tells us what we are getting into here. The introduction is called The Beginning of the End. What does it tell us? It tells us that we will go from sigil to the fringes of the outlands on a tour of remarkable realms, brushing shoulders with immortals and discovering a plot to change forever the multiverse. All right. I, that's what I want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I want to hear. Right. I want, I want this. Yep. Mm -hmm. So far, so good. Uh, the characters will begin in sigils morgue at third level with no memory of where they came from. Okay, here's another reminder. We're about to spoil some big stuff here, the whole point of this adventure. So uh, check out now if, if you don't want to be spoiled. So tell us about this introduction and what, what we know right from the start. Yeah, well, they tell us the characters are going to find themselves in Sigil in this mortuary. They're going to end up meeting their Canaloth, Shemeska. And our Canaloths are fiends. Um, Shemeska is a powerful information broker in Sigil who owns a casino named Fortune's Wheel. So that's where Turn of Fortune's Wheel comes from. Uh, Shemeska is going to offer to research the character's history in exchange for them hunting down a rogue Modron. This will send them across the Outlands and they will find out information about Shemeska and the huge plot behind Shemeska being the villain. Uh, and they will realize they've actually encountered her many times in their prior lives, but now this one final time they have a chance to stop her. Um, they're going to gain levels after particular chapters, reaching 10th level, and then when they discover their true selves, they will jump to 17th for the final chapter. There you go. Then we hear about the whole twist that we're going to get with this adventure, which is the multiversal glitch. The book focuses on the characters being part of a multiversal glitch. Something's gone wrong with the multiverse and the characters are feeling this effect. Uh, so they died after a remarkable life under suspicious means, born somehow reborn, dissociated from the multiverse, but also having multiple or possible previous lives. 
<laughs> so the characters are starting at third level. And we're, we're given the instructions as the game master to ask the players three questions of their character. What's your greatest decision or turning point? What's something your character wishes they could change? And what is the signature possession or physical trait that is most notable about your character? And we're sort of told why we're asking this, but we're not (laughs) really told why we're asking this. Mm -hmm. Then we're told about incarnations. Each player has two other forms. So a player will be in one incarnation. If they die, they will be able to switch to a different incarnation of that character. Mm-hmm. All incarnations are the same level. So if you're still at level three, all your incarnations are level three. If you've leveled to level seven and you die, all your incarnations are level seven. Uh, you can have these characters be as similar or different as you want. They could be a similar species, but a different class. They could be the same class, but completely different species. They could be very similar, except for some cosmetic differences. Then we get to how do we introduce this? And this is where we have a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a question. So go ahead, take over Teos. Yeah. So they say that the DM gets to decide, do you want to surprise the players with all of this incarnation business where they will learn about it the first time they die, or do you want to create variants up front? But it doesn't really give guidance on how to explain this to the players. Just sort of like, well, hey, you could just say create, you know, two alternate characters. And I think that there we've seen like it in the past, like say Dark Sun, for example, in second edition would say create a character tree because it's so lethal that you need to have backup characters that we're going to swap to and rules for leveling them up and so on. Um, and, and so maybe there could have been that approach here, but but it doesn't. It just kind of gives us this option without really backing it up. Um, It does tell us that each of the three incarnations a player plays should have a nexus feature, something that's a recurring object or trait and links them, like they have a scar or birthmark, distinctive symbol or clothing, right? You always have the red sash or a signature weapon or piece of armor, a particular makeup or hairstyle, right? A blue streak in their hair, something like that. And so when an incarnation dies, one of the incarnations that didn't just die, so you have to swap, is restored after the current encounter. They appear attuned to any magic items to which the previous character was attuned. So they did address that kind of an issue. Um, And before that new incarnation has appeared, you could do something like raise dead or something like that. Um, They say that if you were to reincarnate the dead character, then now that incarnation would be in that new form um for future um like future situations right if they if you if like you reincarnate and into a goblin and then you die next time you use that incarnation they'd be in goblin form so there's some of that it it doesn't cover all the situations it gives you a few touch points to sort of help you try to kind of put your mind around it um I, i don't know that it's thorough but then again they're trying to keep that page count down um you as DM get to decide when the incarnation should return um, and they should appear in a safe space. Like it recommends, you know, like maybe it's a um, uh, that they are in a closet somewhere. Right. And they say the incarnation shouldn't come to you. You should come to them. So sort of as the characters are exploring, then they find that incarnation. 
One thing they don't really tell us, I think, I don't know if you saw this somewhere, but I presume the incarnations know everything, but maybe they don't. Like I was curious about to what extent the incarnations, I assume they remember everything they knew before, but do they know what the other character just went through? I'm guessing not. So maybe they have to get caught up to speed, you know, every time, which could get kind of old. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm guessing I've read so many times in different areas that the characters don't know who they are or so I feel like I read somewhere where it says a new incarnation does not know who they are either. Yeah. Uh, but it really doesn't talk about what, if they know what the previous incarnation, I would say no, yeah. they don't know what the previous incarnation did, but they may know what they have done as in one of these incarnations, if they come back. Yeah. It does say they don't know how they ended up where they are. So if you find them in a closet, they don't recall getting to the closet. Um, there is some guidance around the fact that they're unkillable, right? So like that it's totally fine that if a character wants to chuck themselves into machine into a machine to, you know, clog up the gears, they know that'll kill them, but they also know that they're essentially just going to come back as another incarnation that that's okay because they're now out for the rest of at least that encounter and really as long as you want. And we get some commentary of sort of some advice around, "Hey, you don't have to bring an incarnation back with full resources." So you could sort of put a little bit of the brakes on sacrifices by deciding like, hey, your incarnation shows up, but it's at half hit points or, you know, choose five spell slots to get rid of or something like that. Um, and then they do have a sort of strange advice of like, if you get tired of playing a character, you could retire, I think, the entire character and all of its incarnations and make a new glitch character, which is really weird but yeah okay whatever like i mean if character if a player's not happy sure accommodate them but it's sort of strange advice um yeah. and then we're told that in chapter 14 the glitch will end from then on you're going to play your only character one single higher level character and at that point death is permanent there's no more of this stuff you've you've figured yourself out and so on mm -hmm. yeah this is this is super interesting and i you said in your notes that it's a weird concept uh but we're but good for Planescape. Yeah. It it you know draws on Planescape Torment, the video game which a lot of people came into D D through. So it hits that nostalgia button really hard. Many other kinds of media, right? There are movies out there. The Edge yeah. of Tomorrow, I think, is one, uh -huh. Groundhog Day, and this whole idea of you know you're coming back, so you're actually going to use this as a way to solve your problems knowing that you don't have to worry about permanently being dead if you somehow perish during your adventure and that is a very powerful tool mm -hmm. and so you need to think carefully about how you as the game master are going to use that tool do you want to hide it and spring it on the characters when it first happens do you want to just explain everything up front right away and put the tool into the character's ha player's hands right away so that they're making their glitch characters right when they're making their regular character and they can plan everything out and they know what, you know, you can make a better story that way, perhaps. Uh, it loses some of the surprise. Yeah. But maybe the, is the surprise you know that moment of surprise is it worth 
the hassle that it would put everyone through to make char more characters later. Uh, we, it's it's a tough yeah. question, and it's something going back to our listener questions, right? It's something that you communicate ahead of time, or yeah. at least figure out ahead of time, knowing your player preferences to get the right tone and the right flow of your campaign. Yeah, and 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 uh, I I think that what I would do is I would and 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 what I you know what works for me is I would want to I would want the surprise, but I would also not what I don't want is your character died. Oh hey, make a new character. Here are all these rules while we continue playing because character creation just takes too long. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I think what I would do is I would say to the players, um, this could be pretty lethal. Create two characters with one of them as your primary. Um, have some connection. Think through some connection between your two characters in some way. Not that they know each other, but some something, some similarity or something like that. Something that would tie them together. Leave it at that. When the first one dies, then go like, okay. You know, we we find that once you find the the other incarnation, right? And go, hey, bring out your back back um, backup character. And moments later, you could say to the whole players. Hey, everybody, now you get it. This is true for all of you. So I want you to make a third character between now and the next session and go back and, and if, if, if need be, think through this Nexus feature and create that across all three characters. You know, maybe that connection you came up with before works or maybe it doesn't feel free to change it. But, you know, we at least you sort of had something to work off of. You could easily jump back in if you died, but you haven't made three characters. You've made two and, you know, something like that. I would probably split the difference. Mm -hmm. I would do this. I would tell the characters, we're going to make play a Planescape game. Here are the rules for making a Planescape character. Bring a character. When they get there, I'm going to hand them a pre-generated character. I'm going to say, start with this character. And as we're playing, somebody, as we will talk about with the opening chapter, is likely to die. Mm -hmm. When that happens... I'm going to say, I'm going to change the way the glitch works because this is my campaign and this is how I want to run it. Yep. I'm going to say you're looking at your friend who is probably ashes on the floor. And where those ashes used to be, there is now a person. And you see this strange sort of hazy warp look all of a sudden pop into focus. And there is that character. And then... I will just continue along those lines. Maybe after chapter one, assuming maybe one or two other characters die, I will then say, make a third character in your free time and mm -hmm. bring that next time and sort of introduce it slowly. I also like this. You've got a thing here. I would eliminate the need for death and let the players decide if, when they glitch. And I think that could be a really powerful mm -hmm. thing to do. Maybe it uses inspiration, right? Or something like that. But but that idea that you could switch every now and then could be really cool. It also solves another problem that isn't addressed here at all, which is party balance, right? A lot of times when you play in a campaign, even if the players just show up with whatever they made, they will over time specialize based on each other, right? So if two people created, I can disarm traps, one of them will keep focusing on it and the other one just sort of lets it be as a secondary in case thing and doesn't focus that way because it's already covered. Uh, and if nobody can do deal with traps, then somebody picks up spells or training or something. But here, 
both people who could be the trap people just are gone and you're playing all wizard party all of a sudden or, you know and so that's where it could be worthwhile to let the characters go like no i need to go back to my rogue self and bring that person in and deal with this trap and have some way that you do that maybe at a cost right like maybe your current incarnation has to burn through healing surges and or use inspiration or whatever and that might something like that could be really fun and and i would have liked something like that in this adventure to to allow for it I, i'm watching or i just finished watching loki uh season two and you know thinking of that idea of exerting yourself to sort of do what you need to do within the time stream right i think that's appealing to players today too yeah the one the one reason i put that in there just let them glitch is because it's sort of gruesome to to say well you know i can solve this problem but i need to kill myself to do it that's not going <laughs> to set well with everyone you know sure. especially with some mental health issues out there we need it, a rogue get, hold on <laughs> yeah it may get a little dark and you get that right yeah. you get that uh uh, oh boy, we really need a, the cleric now, and the cleric. Oh well, uh, let me take care of that. So just allowing them to do it, maybe with a small penalty, mm -hmm. or with you know, you're, you're you're when you glitch in, you have half the hit dice that you're supposed to have, or you have no hit dice left, or something. Yeah, uh, yeah. that would give it. That just makes it easier to manage. Uh, and maybe even after a couple of levels, they can do that. Yeah. Uh, they learn mm -hmm. to control it uh, would would be interesting. That could be really cool. Yeah, that's that's a neat idea, too. Or, or you, maybe you can do it once per level or something like, you know, some kind of. Mm -hmm. It's probably nice to start with not letting it happen all the time, um, but uh, but allowing for that. And, and yeah, you also don't want I think the point, you know, one of the points they're doing here mechanically is they're saying, like, when you your incarnation dies, you bring in a new one and that can't be the same one that just died. And the idea is to switch these around because otherwise you won't feel this sort of multiversal angle, right? And that is part of the point. But it is also a little disjointing to, and it doesn't address this at all, is you're telling players to play different characters. Are they supposed to be the same personality? Mm-hmm or reflections and i think they are right because they are they're kind of variants if you will in, in marvel terms um mm -hmm. but should they you know should you be having that sort of an experience which is really cool but then you want to dig into that right if you want to say like hey i'm playing a wizard a barbarian and a rogue who are all alternate realities of what i could have become mm -hmm. right and, and that's kind of what, what they're getting at, but they don't super say you have to do that, right? But I think that's right. that's a lot of the fun if your players can get into it. Right. And and that's the thing. They they ask those questions at the start. What was a turning point in your character's <laughs> life? Yeah. And and so you're like, oh, okay, I see what they're doing. You're gonna have three versions. They're all gonna be human, but one's gonna be a ranger and one's gonna be a rogue and one's gonna be, you know, a monk because they made these choices. But it's not that. It's not has nothing to do or it doesn't seem to have anything to do with the timeline. And then it says you know, at the end, the characters will learn why this is happening, but they don't tell you up front. That's the one thing they don't spoil up front, yeah. which as a game master, that's what I need to know mm -hmm. so that these decisions that I might make. Yes, I can go through. I can read through the whole thing. But 
again, that's I want to be able to run this adventure without having to read all the way through it, even though it's only 96 pages of large font. <laughs> uh, so I want to know up front, if I decide that you can just glitch without uh, perishing, does that make sense with the story that is it why this yeah. is happening? Uh, so I, I want to know that up front yeah, yeah, so I can a good... make a change. That's a good point. This adventure spoils a number of things, but it doesn't here tell you your true story, and it probably should for the DM. Um, mm-hmm. Just sort of like like it names the villain, and I actually wondered whether it should say this is the villain because it's a lot easier to as a DM to role play the villain not being the villain, even if you know, if you read the whole adventure. Just having all the text line up with pretending they're not is it's easier to DM that, right? And the moment you really are right. saying that in the text, it's like in your brain. And and that's why we'll talk about this later, but there's a part where they meet them. And I think that that you kind of need to say like, yeah, here's how to run that so you don't give it away. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. Mm. Yep. So that's, that is the important part of the adventure. Uh, we get the backgrounds uh, about what's happening. Then we get the glitch. Then we get into the adventure itself, starting with the first chapter of the adventure called Grave Escape. And if you played paint, if you played Planescape Torment, you know this beginning. The characters wake up in Sigil's mortuary basement, lying on medical examination tables as if they're dead. Their stuff is, you know, on a shelf nearby, and a floating talking skull is looking down on them. Uh, Mort, you know, starts exposing and expounding on the story as it has happened so far. Hey, why are you alive? You're not supposed to be alive. Oh, you're in big trouble if you're down here alive. You better get out of here. And that's where the adventure kicks off. Yeah. And it's a fun beginning, right? I think that's a neat shocker. I'm okay with it being like the video game. Um, I think so far, everything about this to me is is awesome, right? There's some things that would handle mm-hmm. differently, but I love the idea of a glitch. I think that's the kind of dream big, be bold kind of thing that Planescape needs. And a classic callback, I'm okay with that. I think that's fun. Absolutely. So with this uh, information that they're alive, but they can't remember anything, they know what they can do, but they don't know who they are which is a typical trope uh, for these kinds of adventures. And and also the typical trope. Nobody can answer anything useful, right? You talk mm-hmm. to Mort and he can help. He'll answer questions and knows basically nothing of use other than, hey, you're in the mortuary and sigil. The Heralds of Dust faction will totally want you dead because once a thing dies, they want it to like stay in its current shape. So that you're supposed to be dead. They will not take kindly if they see you. So good luck getting out of here. And yep. you will meet NPC or creature un- upon creature that does not tell you how to get out. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like they've all just been living here, right? And just they're either going to attack you or they don't know how to get out. <laughs> yeah. And they're more likely than not to attack you and more likely than not can do a lot of damage with those attacks. Uh, yeah. This was... I, I when I saw the adventure starts at third level, I was like, okay, good. This isn't an intro adventure. This isn't a learn to play adventure. This is probably going to be played by people who are pretty familiar with the rules. They understand what this is about. Start at third level, makes it less swingy. Great. And then I realized that 
they really should die in this first chapter to introduce this yeah. glitch concept. So that's too bad. Maybe they should have started at first level to make them easier to kill because there's nothing yes. more difficult than following the rules, but still killing a character once they hit third, fourth level. And then beyond that, it's, it's practically impossible. I mean, I think maybe one of the virtues of starting at third is that you, um, you maybe aren't super aware of what your character can do. And and even when mm. swapping characters, that becomes more true, right? Like you swap to another incarnation and you're like, yeah, what is this? There are all these features. I'm not going to be particularly great at using them. But I agree that it, it would be easier to kill a mod. In fact, you know, I, I have run this as part of the play test and I can't talk about what the play test was like versus this, but I'll just say that I don't think we had any deaths in that play test. If we did, maybe one, characters were particularly good at avoiding these terrible dangers. One thing is they were very afraid of this. This place feels harmful and spooky and dangerous. Uh, it has a macabre feel. And so characters, at least in our party, were very cautious, right? They were not touching the thing that looks interesting. They were like, let's just go to another room, find a way out. Um, and so that caution meant that it was a little harder to kill characters than you'd think. Even though there are, and, and I somewhat they got lucky and didn't just you know walk into the rooms that immediately become a combat, but um, but there are a number of fun encounters here, right, Sean? You want to oh, share yeah. any of these? That sure, there's poltergeist putting on a puppet show for for skeletons. Poltergeists can move objects right with their powers, and so if the characters interrupt, the the skeletons and the poltergeists attack, or the characters can join in. But if the character dies, the poltergeist used the body as a puppet to join in the puppet show, which I thought was macabre yeah. and totally hilarious. Um, a Herald of Dust member dissecting a flesh golem. And as soon as it realizes that there are living creatures here, they both attack. That's a CR4 and a CR5 monster mm -hmm. together against third level characters, which most characters will probably survive, but it might use a bit of resources. Mm -hmm. uh, I would have loved to do something funny with the flesh golem who has a big hole in its chest because the Herald of Dust had dropped a key into uh -huh. it while it was operating. So now it's trying to get it out. Uh, the the incinerator is hilarious. This is where most characters should die if it's done well, because as soon as you move into like the circular tube hallway, a character or a zombie on the other side pulls a lever which locks doors on both sides and then pulls a lever that does 44 points of fire damage. And it's a, I think it's like a DC 18 save yeah. uh, to take half. So at, at third level, most characters, unless you're like fighters or barbarians, are going to have around 22 to 24 hit points. Uh, and that's, uh, so that's <laughs> yeah, dead and mostly dead right off the bat for that. And one thing that's interesting uh, to look at, so this first series here has a number of things that can kill you right the things you've mentioned uh poison banquet hall a demi lich who records the dead has writer's block for writing an epitaph for somebody but will kill you if you don't do a good job at it um you know all of these things are pretty deadly is the rest of the adventure going to be this way right if the idea is that we switch incarnations i'm curious to see how hard they made the rest whether it has this sort of randomness to it of like, oh boy, gee, this huge thing can just murder me, um, but that's okay because incarnations, or you know, will we not? And, and design-wise, I couldn't help but think to myself, 
how often do I think characters should die in this adventure? And it's a tough question yeah. to, to answer. It, it is. And it's something that I don't have the answer to because I have only read up to a certain point, <laughs> but I thought the exact same thing. Are yeah. we really going to lean into this? Are we, if, if we're going to do it, let's do it. Yeah. Right. If we're going to yeah. do this, let's do it all the way. And it's, it's, it's a tough challenge though, because by making every encounter practically deadly, then it's hard to get through the adventure. Yes. Uh, D and D counts on you succeeding. Yeah. And the other thing is you and don't so, want to TPK. You want to kill one or two characters, but have them move forward. And there's a little bit of word there sort of like, I think there's some advice that sort of says like, you get to decide what happens if it's a TPK. And it's like, well, do you know how D&D works? Because D&D usually, it's all or nothing, right? Either characters down mm -hmm. and someone brings them back up and they don't actually die, or three characters are down and now we could quickly get to TPK land. But just one character mm -hmm. outright being taken out is difficult unless you do things like 44 fire damage. You know, you have to have these mm -hmm. singular just blasts, right? Because otherwise it's too easy to, like if you just say high CR monsters, well, that can be a TPK. Mm -hmm. yeah it's got to be like one shot mm -hmm. save or die sort yeah. of uh things which good design tells you not to do <laughs> yeah, well <laughs> but this isn't a regular adventure this is something special so all normal right common wisdom designed uh canards go right out the window yeah, yeah. With, with with this sort of design it's gonna be interesting to see uh, so eventually, if you survive all of these strange encounters, and it's the map is strange because there's, you know, the map is, it's neat. It's a really cool map, but there is like a straight path right out that you could take if you get lucky, uh, where you literally only have to go through one or two encounters. I'm trying to remember what's yeah. right outside of the main area. Is there another area or is it just a hallway? No, so, so you can go, two? you can go out from the, from the mortuary uh, start through the incinerator. And then you can go from there around a hallway out, right? and out. Yeah. So if you get lucky, you yeah. can, you can make it out pretty quickly, which, which when we ran a play test, that's what happened. They got out pretty quickly. And I forget whether maybe one character died in the incineration, but, but if so, that's it. And just another spoiler alert here. This is the adventure that uh, Baldman Games is running as their intro to uh, Planescape. Planescape at PAX and at mm -hmm. uh, PAX Unplugged and at uh, Winter Fantasy. So running this as an intro adventure could be very short uh if the so that something that will have to be done by dms to make sure that you know this yeah. two or four or however many hours it is everyone gets to now to do every room though would probably take eight hours uh so it's sort of right. a, it's going to be an interesting call yeah absolutely and then maybe they have pregens or something just be like here look you came back as another character uh choose something that yeah you yep. know makes it look like you um yeah so, so overall i mean i thought this was a great start there's some fascinating stuff there's you know mm -hmm. a, a faction you start in a faction location 
um, surprises, um, some neat encounters. I, I really like the design of the mortuary. They have fun things like, you know, a cold locker with interesting bodies inside. Just some really fun and quirky and, and humorous. Um, uh, this start, super solid. I've got some cautions about how it's all going to play out and how this all works. But everything that's been seen so far, I, I feel very strongly with and I felt strongly with back even during the playtest time. Um, so, so I'm very curious where it'll go from here, Sean. Very curious. Yeah. Do you want to say where it goes from here? Uh, well, do you, do you want to go into chapter two? Uh, I'm fine with that because I had trouble with chapter two. Uh, not uh, just in the sense that I'm reading it. I'm like, okay, tell me the story. Tell me where the characters go from here. And we sort of get this. Here's what they know about Sigil. <laughs> which we already got out of the Sigil in the Outlands book. Here are some encounters that they might have. Yeah. Here are some things that they might learn. But as I'm reading it, I'm like, I don't understand what is supposed to happen. Now, granted, I didn't, I skimmed it pretty quickly. Yeah. But I was looking for like, here's encounter one, here's encounter two, here's what they learn, here's where they learn where to go. And then I'm like, where is that information? I can't find it. Chapter two is, uh, I would say, as weak as chapter one is strong um, because it is really there's not a lot of support and I don't appreciate how it's set up. So the setup is you emerge from the mortuary basement onto the streets of Sigil and you go, whoa, look, it's Sigil. And some dude bumps into you and kind of just, but it's just a commoner, but just bumps into you and says rude stuff. And a uh, Baryar tout, so this is one of the guides of Sigil, says, you know, hey, I can help you out. Right. So the idea is supposed to be that in, in, in this world full of confusion, don't know what to do. A guide has presented themselves and offers help. And for three gold a day, which you've got your gear so you can easily afford, they will guide you around Planescape. So good. That helps. You just gave a friendly NPC and, and so on that, that could that could help you here. But then the question is, well, what are you doing? Do and, and the book sort of goes like mm-hmm. explore sigil and here are some ideas. But, you know, you've got the guidebook. Mm-hmm. Just, run, you know, what do they want to do? Do they want to go eat planar grub? Do they want to get ink at Fell's tattoos? And it all sounds lovely. But I'm not here on a Disney cruise. I need to figure out who I am. I just escaped the mortuary basement. Right. And it does say, like, well, you know, maybe it's got a paragraph here, big or two paragraphs on who am I? Like, maybe you want to go off. Mm-hmm. And, and but essentially what it says is, the Hall of Records has no information. The Institute for Intellectual Excellence has no information. And I think that what would have worked for, I worry that doesn't work for most groups. And most groups, the players are going to say, I need to figure out who I am. So I want to go to the Hall of Records. And you can say, great, let's go to, or I want to go to some place that has information. Well, there's the Hall of Records. And on the way to the Hall of Records, you could present fun and interesting things about sigil Mm -hmm. and now that experience would feel good you wouldn't feel like everything is just you know like like you're you're being shunted off into disneyland when you're actually supposed to be on a mission you can be on your mission and there's some pieces here that they tell you that are it's sort of swept aside text wise like it says like when you visit fell's tattoos maybe you realize your character has a fear of needles 
And the concept is that you're going to maybe learn about yourself as you're in Sigil, but I guess it's up to the player. And I would have liked a better mechanic for that. Like if we said, great, the characters go to the Hall of Records or wherever they want to go to, which will probably be a place like that to find about themselves. Along the way, they can find some things that are interesting and cool. And when they're doing these cool, interesting things, they can learn about themselves in vague ways. And you can give them a prompting. Here's some example questions you could ask, right? How do you feel about this kind of food? And when they answer, you could say, you realize this is how you've always felt, right? Like you unlock this part of your character. So I just felt like this was kind of uh, weird. You do have two sigil encounters they give you that I think are okay. There's a society of sensation muse that comes up to you and wants to record sensations and you can either express them or like, like one of them's fear. So you could either like startle a commoner walking by and she's recording this, or you could somehow cause fear uh, in yourself or something like that. And, and that's all right. You know, it's okay. Introduces a faction, sort of. There's planar philosophers. You meet three philosophers discussing deities, and you can opine. You might even be asked to join a faction, and you could presumably go hang out with them. But again, nothing leads to help. Nothing's <laughs> mission-related. Yeah. Um, and then the harmonium come in, the philosophers with clubs. Okay. Um, and the idea here is that the... Uh, the harmonium, which are peacekeepers in, in the, in, and kind of charged with the laws of sigil, have realized that these characters somehow are part of a glitch, are somehow wrong. And so they come to arrest you for crimes against the multiverse. <laughs> and this then is, is a very railroady piece where you get to choose. Are you going to go with them or fight them? If you fight them, a Shatter Kai shows up and sort of helps you, hey, this way, escape, this way, follow me, I know a way out of here. Or if you are, if you give in to these uh, Harmonium officers, a Harmonian officer, which is actually a disguised Shatter Kai, same person, will come and say, I'll take them from here and then say, I'm helping you escape, come with me. And the kind of Stick slash carrot is, I know that these harmonium will not rest until they've got you, but I'm going to help you escape. And I can take you to a safe place, but will not say what's really going on, which is I work for Shemeska and I'm taking you to her location. And it mm -hmm. feels weird. You know, it's, it's not, it'd be one thing if there was carrot, like I can, I know somebody who can tell you who you are. Something like right. that. But but it's just sort of like, come with me if you want to live. And, and and characters don't generally do that. They kind of go like, who are you? I don't trust you. In fact, I trust you less because you offered me help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I would, knowing that now, having you explain mm -hmm. it to me, I would put something on each of the characters that is a clue that leads them somewhere. Mm. That would then lead them to this person. Yeah. Uh, oh, your character has a tattoo. As soon as you come out, someone says, oh, did you get that at Fells? I love that. Here's mine. Right. Oh, I got this tattoo at Fells. Let's go to Fells. Yeah. You could have encounters along the way. The person at Fells could say, yeah, I, I've just started working here. I didn't do that. 
but I know somebody who has one that I did. Mm-hmm. It's a person who's in this faction. They send you yeah. there that, you know, that or, or I know somebody who got the same tattoo. I can tell you where they are. You know, some, yeah, some kind of connection like that. So right. that you feel like you're in charge of following where this is going. Instead, this is one long chapter yeah. of, I don't know what I'm, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I think as DM, you're like, I don't know how to tell you to do the things you're supposed to do. Even whether that's like, Hey, here's the map of Sigil. Where do you want to go? But which feels weird. I mean, I just got out of the basement. Are, are they looking for me? You know, do I need to watch out for the Herald's Dust? Oh no, it's the Harmonium. So somehow you're supposed to end up with Pharaoh, this uh, agent of Shemeska, who does not tell you that's who she is, and she takes you into the Under Sigil to get you to the safe place, quote unquote. One of the important things that isn't addressed is what happens if if Pharaoh dies because she has the stat block of a spy. So she could easily bite it. Not easily, but she could bite it. Um, And especially in the there are two encounters. The first one is just sort of like a kind of clue prequel thing, which is you find a a cranium rat that mentally communicates sort of like do your worst. We've already won, which is a little cryptic. And I guess the point is it has eaten poisoned cake. So it's like if I'm defenseless. I already won because I ate cake, I think is what it's saying. And then maybe you figure out the poison part, which when you get to the tea party, which is a bunch of cakers, this this faction that has not done well, and it has made cakes down here in this weird sewer place, and it is throwing a party and invites you. And if you sit down for 10 minutes, cool, you can go on and be undisturbed. Otherwise, it's a fight. And oh, by the way, the cake has like weird bat wings coming out of it. And you can do a check to realize that it's black blood and isn't a normal bat. But that's the only check. If you eat the cake, you are cursed and you will turn into a Vargoil. There's <laughs> no saving throw. It's just what's going to happen. Um, and if you fight, uh, well, they, they are, you know, defeatable, but they are, um, what are they? They're thugs, which, you know, thugs are, are hard, but there are only four of them. Um when they die, they become Vargul reflections, however, so it's it's a it's a decent fight. And there are some teleporters, there are sort of sewer pipes that they can go through, anybody can go through, but they know where the lead. So they can kind of hop around the battlefield. Not that it's super helpful for a thug, but they can do that, um, and the Vargoyles can do that. Once you defeat them, you can go on your way. I guess some of you probably maybe become Vargoyles. Doesn't really say here that a Vargwill damages an incarnation. So apparently you're okay to come back as that incarnation later on. And then you show up, you you come out of um you you come out of under sigil in the ladies' ward, and you're about a block away from where you need to go. So again, Pharaoh better be alive. There's no notion of what Pharaoh does in that previous encounter, by the way. Like, does she eat cake? <laughs> Important question. Yeah, not. It's it's the usual where the NPC fades into the background, <laughs> but uh, but then you're you're at the you're supposed to Pharaoh will take you to this casino, and this is her safe place, uh, and then we'll be see in the next chapter when we talk about it, uh, kind of everything that happens in the casino, which is owned by Shemeska and, and how that plays out. But okay. I found this chapter one is so strong, and then chapter mm-hmm. two is just. I don't know what happened here and what this experience is trying to do. And it and it feels like it needed a development phase that would really focus that mm-hmm. play experience or, or focus it for the DM and the players, right? It can have many options. It can right. be open, but 
give me something to go on. Like, yeah, if you're right, if, if you had a, now had the chance to go through your personal belongings and you found four clues, like that tattoo parlor, mm-hmm. the, you know, philosopher's station where they gather and have discourse. But then there were clues about you in some way that can be vague, almost even meaningless, mm-hmm. maybe personally meaningful, but plot wise meaningless. But you would go after them and you would do you would feel like you were in charge of this. Instead, it just feels like led by the nose to mm-hmm. one thing after the other cuz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm not even I'm not even opposed to sometimes lead you by the nose. If it's clear to the DM, this is what these are the four encounters they need to go through. Intersperse other things in there if you want, but go A, B, C, D. If you want to, if you have two hours, just do that. Yeah. If you have more time, play out these things. Uh, but yeah, it, I was just so confused as I was trying yeah. to read it. I mean, so I've, I've what needed to happen because I've played it or I've run it and then read it. So I've now this is now my second time reading it, and when I've run it, you know, it's a little easier for me to get. But yeah, it is. It is. It's complicated, and as a DM, it's intimidating, um, and, and just. Yeah, it, it falls apart a bit, unfortunately, which is too bad. Um, so we'll see how the next yeah. part goes. Hopefully well, better. That's a, that's okay. That's right. We'll check out Chapter 3 and beyond oh, on yeah. the next show. And I, I don't so, know if we said it. At the end of each of these chapters, you gained a level. So they were three. They gained a level mm-hmm. at the end of the Mortuary. So they're actually level four when they're going through Chapter 2. Uh, and now they will, going into Chapter 3, they'll be level five. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us, Teos. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Sean. And and thank you to all of our listeners. We hope you are enjoying our show. Thank you to those who support us via Patreon as well. Thank you to our Master of Dungeon supporters. A special shout out in our show notes goes to our Master of Realm supporters. And for our Masters of the Multiverse, yeah, you know what's coming. Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, DM Chad, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Nathan Fuller, The Mighty Jurd, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Chad Jackson, Brian King, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Chad Lynch, The Mathemagician, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Robert Pasley, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Sean uh, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna Samose, David Somerville from Prismanox.com, Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you for being masters of our multiverse. If you, yes, you, you listening or watching, If you would like to become a patron of the show, we would very much appreciate that. You can go to patreon.com slash masteringdnd to show your support there. Ask us questions. Join our Discord where we have great conversations about all of these topics that we talk about and more. If you can't support us financially, we completely understand that. You could help us out in many other ways. You could leave us a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to the podcast. You could also subscribe on our YouTube channel to give us a little bit more of a reach there. Teos, you've been doing a lot of work outside of this show. What have you been doing and where can people find it? 
Ooh, uh, I broke down the changes that D&D has been done, uh, doing to their core books, the 2014 core books, uh, and what the language is like and what we can learn from that. Uh, so you can check that out at alphastream.org or on my YouTube channel, which you can also get to through there. Um, Sean, where are you hiding out these days? I am not hiding. I am proudly <laughs> on many social media channels, such as Twitter and Mastodon and Blue Sky, all of the at Sean Merwin and the show at Mastering D&D are on those same media platforms as well. You can always join our community and ask questions to us uh, via Patreon, or you can leave comments on our YouTube channel called, um, imagine that, Mastering Dungeons. So Teos, we have escaped the mortuary and have done a quick little tour of sigil before heading to uh the ladies ward so yeah. what are we going to do now i'm going to prepare for a fantastic thanksgiving friend when you're around with uh family relatives you can just assign a faction to each of them choose which faction from planescape matches your various relatives it's a it's a great game mm -hmm. yeah and do not feed them blood cake oh yeah no mm -mm. you don't want their head coming off that's bad vargoyle Vargoyle families are not uh, the families that you want. 